Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 through 10. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the poor, pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Probably the most famous words of Jesus, the best known words of Jesus, and perhaps the least understood or the most misunderstood and misapplied words of Jesus. They've been, you know, a generation or two ago, they were applied politically. Uh, They were uh, both uh, Mahatma Gandhi and Harry Truman admired these words, which is ironic given that the one was fighting imperialists and the other was mm, possibly the, the leader of a large nation that was imperialistic. And yet they both admired these words. Or now, basically, I would say our words are now, our worlds are now predominantly focused on our inner feelings, a psychologistic world. And in that context, then, these words take on new meanings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. What we, you know, we can end up advocating that. The church should be a place for people that are, you know, beta males, no alpha males involved, no alpha males allowed. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who meek. The church should be a place for wimps to feel comfortable. And we can psychologize it. But that may not be what Jesus had in mind. What we do is we end up taking the text out of his historic context and plugging it into ours, whether our context be political, 20th century, or psychological, 21st century, we end up taking these, see, they're aphorisms, right? And the thing about an aphorism is you can pull it out of one context and stick it in another, and it it can seem to fit, although you've changed the meaning. So, it could be, in the 20th century, in a imperialistic context, it could be that Jesus is advocating Nonviolent resistance, that he's opposing imperialism. Or in a modern 21st century context, when we deal with focus on our inner psychological being, it could be that Jesus is urging us all to be kind and gentle, warmer, fuzzy place. But Jesus wasn't writing against either of those contexts in particular. So what we want to do is take a look at the passage today and, and ferret out in his context, what was Jesus referencing? What was he advocating? 
Turn with me then to Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, page 683 in your pew Bible. And we'll look at this. Now, this is very much uh, experimental, hypothetical. Mm-mm-mm. Basically, you look at the literature, and people aren't sure what to do with this. Are there two groups of... Are there eight random characteristics? Are there two groups of four? Do we continue on until 11 and 12 and there's three groups of three? Uh, I'm, and so interpreters, really, scholars really aren't agreed on a lot of this. So let me offer you a hypothetical, an informed approximation, an intelligent guess, and let me give you the basis for my interpretation so you can evaluate it. Because, like I say, the literature has no consensus. So let's start, first of all, with verses 1 to 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Now, sitting down was a common posture for a rabbi in the first century. Jesus sat down and he sat down to teach. And the disciples gathered around. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Why does the geography matter? When Jesus saw the crowds, he he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Why does geography matter? Many of you would remember the time when some other man in biblical history went up to a mountain and began to teach. So Moses went up to Sinai, received the Ten Commandments from God, and came down to teach. And then from the rest of the Old Testament, then, the defining characteristic of Israelites was the Ten Commandments. And now Jesus, Matthew, begins his gospel, Jesus' first public ministry. There's a summary statement of healing and preaching. But the first content that Matthew gives us about Jesus in his public teaching is this. He saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, and he sat down to teach. This is the, basically, Jesus' entry-level teaching here. This is the essence for him, the essence. As the Ten Commandments was the essence of what it meant to be a Jew, so the Beatitudes is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is on the mountain as Moses was on the mountain. What does it mean to be his followers? Here's his first summary, his first offer of what it means, his starting point. Here's the matters of first importance for Jesus when he talks about what it means to be his follower. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. There's a striking feature of this if we compare it to today. His starting point, his first base, his, his fundamental foundation is about being poor in spirit, mourning, me, being meek, and hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Notice it's not about theology. It's about character of some sort, traits of some sort. We'll see in a moment. It's not about uh, a theological checklist. Now, obviously, theology is essential. Uh, You can't be a Christian without some measure of sound theology. But that's not where Jesus puts the thrust of his emphasis here. It's not on theology. 
You know, the Apostles' Creed is essential to be a Christian. But, but it's not the defining characteristic. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not the focus. It's a statement of theology, but, but not of a character. There's one thing I had been hoping to work on while I was here and probably won't get to before I retire, but one thing I'd been hoping to work on was our bylaws in particular. There's a statement of faith in our bylaws, like every other church, right? In, a statement of faith, in, our, in our bylaws, we have a statement of faith. This defines us. And it is necessary, ah, but not sufficient. Because there's no corresponding statement of character, statement of values, statement of who we are as people. It's a statement of what we believe, and, and that's essential, and, and it's there for historic reasons, because there have been a lot of fights over what Christians should believe and what they shouldn't believe. And it's important. But, but it's not sufficient. You know, when Jesus started out, he starts out not with a statement of theological formulations. You know, God is one, I am divine, the Holy Spirit is a person. He starts out with demeanor traits, character of some sort. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He starts at a different place than what we normally do. So we want to think about that and, and how that should shape how we define ourselves, how we characterize ourselves, how we publicly present ourselves to the world around us as people who are right, or as people who are poor in spirit and mourn and meek and hunger and thirst for righteousness, as people who have the truth, or as people who live according to these attributes, poor in spirit, mourn, meek. And so that's our first point, is that as Jesus goes up in the mountain, what he does is, for Christians, he does what Moses did for Israel. With the Ten Commandments, now the Eight Beatitudes, he defines who we are, the essence of who we are. And it's not a, a, a definition that is predominantly theological. It's a, a definition which is predominantly relational of some sort. And now we turn to look at what that is, what that, the nature of those relationships. Verses 3 to 6. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So my first offer to you this morning, my first uh, uh, theory for you to evaluate. You know, is Jesus listing eight qualities? Or is there some kind of grouping here? I suggest that I think these four are grouped according to deficiencies. They, they share a, a commonality that's not shared by the second four. The first four share a commonality. There's a poverty, there's a grief, there's a humiliation or a meekness, and there's a hunger and a thirst. The first four are characterized by deficiencies of some sort, experienced by these people or felt by these people. You could say a brokenness characterizes them. But that's not enough. We've got to ask what kind of brokenness. You know, like I said, our tendency is to interpret that against our culture and what matters in our culture. So our inner psychological experience, these are people who are somehow emotionally broken. 
But psychology is much more a modern preoccupation than a first century preoccupation. And if you look at the background, you'll find many of these same terms, maybe all of them, come up in the book of Isaiah. Now, I won't show you all of them, but I'll show you enough. Just I'll show, demonstrate one passage from Isaiah chapter 61. Here are the words of Isaiah 61. And what I want you to hear from here is both the similar language and the similar correlation between this quality and God's response to it. So keep this in mind. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those hunger and thirst for righteousness. Here's what the book of Isaiah chapter 61 says. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. The prophet imagines a king coming. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the word, the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. I think what Jesus is doing is alluding to these words which may not be familiar to us so much, but were highly familiar to them. That defined the nature of their lives in the first century. And Jesus is alluding back to these words, saying the word of Isaiah is coming true. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus said, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. The, you know, notice these phrases, the poor, the captives, the prisoners, those who mourn, those who grieve. Mourning in Zion. Ashes as at a funeral. Spirit of despair. Jesus is saying, the days that Isaiah promised, the days that Isaiah looked forward to, these days have come now. But they're not days of, uh, you know, therapy for our inner psychological struggles. And, and I'm not disparaging that. You know, inner psychological struggles are a reality and therapy is a perfectly useful thing, but it's just not what Jesus is talking about. What was Jesus talking about in Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 61. And why does it feature so prominently in the New Testament? You see, Isaiah chapter 61 Isaiah had predicted that because of Israel's persistence in sin, God was going to send in an enemy army and it was going to devastate the country. It would destroy their cities. It would burn down the temple. It would kill many of the husbands and fathers. It would drag survivors into exile. It was a miserable time, like none other that Israel had ever experienced. But Isaiah didn't end on bad news. Isaiah said, when you are dragged into this exile, and when you've suffered so much, that'll break down your spirit. And Isaiah says, you'll turn again to God. They're brokenhearted because of their political experience, but they're brokenhearted. It's not just a political thing that happened to them. It's a, it's a spiritual thing that happened to them because the only reason they were defeated is because God gave them over to their enemies. Yes, they were defeated. Yes, they were destroyed politically and, and, and militarily. And it was a painful time on a purely hum, human level. But it was a painful time on a deeper level, on a spiritual level. 
Because this happened to them only because God had turned his back on their suffering. And when they were in exile, God said, the experience will break you down not just financially, not just emotionally, not just physically or nationally, politically, but it will break you down spiritually. And you'll come to recognize your poverty, your brokenness, your captivity, your imprisonment. You'll mourn for your sin and for the broken relationship with God. You'll grieve in Zion. And then God says to them, I will come into that situation and I'll rescue you. I'll proclaim good news. I'll bind up the brokenhearted. I'll offer freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. I'll proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, as the Lord's favor and grace comes back on the people, he rescues them from their mourning, from their poverty, from their captivity. It's all about the year of the Lord's favor coming back on them. I'll bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Moving back forward into Jesus' day then, they were still under captivity. And that was the focus of their preoccupation was the political uh, captivity, the the imperialists, the Romans who had come in and invaded them, the, the pagan Romans who wouldn't allow them to worship in freedom and run their own country the way they saw fit. And they were preoccupied with that. And Jesus takes them back to Isaiah and says, this is the lesson. It's not just that we're politically occupied by an imperialistic power. It's that God, in some sense, turned his back. And, And let the economic brokenness and the military brokenness lead to a spiritual brokenness. Because here's the promise, is that when people are spiritually broken, when they're poor in spirit, when they're mourning over their distance from God or the sin in their lives, when they're meek before him, not timid before one another, but when they're broken before him, when they hunger and thirst, not just for food, but they hunger and thirst for righteousness and for acceptance with God, here's the promise. Jesus says. And the promise of Isaiah has come to pass now. It's coming to pass now. Here's the promise. Theirs is the kingdom of God. These are the people who are welcome in. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. They will be filled. So it's still a message for us today. A message to those who feel spiritually broken before God. They feel like they're off his radar. They feel like neglected baby by him. Just as ancient Israel did. Just as many first century Jews did. It's still a message to those who are not emotionally broken so much as that emotional brokenness that led to a spiritual brokenness. You know the kinds of things that Emily was praying about whether it be being orphaned and disabled in China or being a victim in Uganda. It's not just a promise of healing for the physical and emotional life, but this sense of distancing from God and being deserted by him. This is what Jesus is addressing. 
The other things will follow. The comfort will follow. The, the inherit the earth, the success and the prosperity will follow. The filling will follow. But here's the, where, the place where he begins in the present tense, not just the future, but the present tense is, there is the kingdom of heaven. Let these things that break us, let these things that intimidate us, let these things that threaten us, not just affect us physically or emotionally, but let them also burn in our hearts, our spirits. Let them affect us spiritually so that we cry out to God. Say, where are you? Why have you let this happen to me? Don't I matter to you? Because the promise of Jesus is those who are poor in spirit and come to him without any claims, but recognize their poverty, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn over the state of their lives, not just their physical state or emotional state, but their spiritual state, they will be comforted. Those who are meek, not just timid before one another, or timid at work or at school, but those who have no claim on God, who are meek before God, they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst, not just for food and drink, but for righteousness, Jesus says, they will be filled. This is the, the first promise of the Beatitudes, the first four Beatitudes, that Jesus has come to meet the deficits we feel in our lives, provided their spiritual deficits, that Jesus has come. And he meets them by welcoming us into his kingdom. And he meets them eventually by bringing us into glory. Turn with me then to verses 7 to 10. I think he moves in a new direction here. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Do you see how these four differ from the earlier four? These four are not deficiencies in lives. These four are virtues. They show mercy. They're sincere, not just outwardly, but inwardly. They seek peace with other people. They endure persecution for the sake of faith. You see, these are virtues. Now, in this case, we see similar language, not in this case from Isaiah, but in this case we see similar language from the Psalms. Uh, let me read you just one example from Psalm 18. 25 to 26. And here we have the same pattern of if you live like this, then God will respond like this. Psalm 18, 25 to 26. To the faithful, you, God, show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure. And Jesus is picking up that same kind of correlation when he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Isaiah is a message of hope to the broken. Psalms is different. Psalms offered us, us a pattern of piety. You know, the, the Psalms frequently references pious Jews. It holds up a model. Here's a model of piety. As we saw in Psalm 18, the piety, simple piety. Nothing sophisticated, nothing complicated, no, nothing high level. These are not priests and Levites. To the faithful you show yourself faithful, to the blameless, to the pure. The psalm, Psalms holds up before the readers a model of simple piety which everybody can attain to. So Jesus is shifting now from offering healing to the broken. And now he's shifting to offering us a model of character, how we should be. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. He's offering us a model of behavior and attitude to live up to. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What Jesus is urging us to do here is, you know, he starts with the broken and offers them entrance into the kingdom. But then he says it's not only about being bankrupt before God. There's something else. It's about developing virtue. Pursuing integrity. Pursuing character. Seeking to honor God by how we live. He doesn't just take the broken and offer them life. He also calls us to virtue. To holiness. You know, we get so worried sometimes about working for salvation that we deny works any part in our lives. We get so worried about becoming legalistic that we ignore any kind of standard of integrity. And what Jesus is doing here is not calling for legalism. He's not talking about working for our salvation. But he was saying is, is, you know, God watches how we live. God cares about how we live. And as we model his character, he honors that and honors us. Blessed are the merciful. God is merciful, and he calls us to be merciful. And as we're merciful, we will be shown mercy. God is pure, and he calls us to be pure. And and as we are pure in heart, then we will see God. God seeks peace and calls us to seek peace. And as we do, Jesus promises we will be called children of God. So Jesus, what he's doing here in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, is doing two things. He's inviting us, on the one hand, to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy. We're not good enough for God. But if we can come and see that, then God welcomes us. He calls the spiritually bankrupt. But then he calls us to spiritual reformation. That he works within us a spiritual vitality. He calls the bankrupt, but he doesn't leave them bankrupt. He builds within them character that's of great value and worth. Let's pray together. Father, at one level, these words are very simple. That you welcome us if we recognize our poverty before you. And that you then don't leave us impoverished 
but build in us character of great value. At one level, these words are very simple. At another level, they're hard to live out. It's easy to suppose that there's some virtue and merit in us. It's easy to fall into the pattern of trying to earn your approval. So, Father, we ask that you might guide us and work in our hearts by the simplicity of these words from Jesus, that we could freely acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and yet look to you to work in our lives that we might honor you by our virtue. We ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.